Thank you. Well, good morning. It is uh, a privilege to be here on such uh, an auspicious occasion and to share with you. Thank you for your courage in inviting me and your generosity in allowing me to do so. Um, uh, just sharing in worship has blessed me no end. And uh, I hope I can add to what God has already said to us as we look at God's word. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 1. Uh, for the last 20 months, I have been preaching through the letter to the Romans. Um, a, a friend or a, a, a colleague in the gospel said many years ago, you shouldn't preach on Romans when you are a novice. Romans is for people with experience and competence. And I realized if I didn't start preaching on it soon, I'd have lost the opportunity altogether. So um, uh, I have been looking at Romans, and I want to just bring uh, part of my thinking from that to you. But we read from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor to both the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You might want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to do a quick tour of those 17 verses. But you know that when you buy a home, there are three priorities that you are told that you must have in your mind. There are only three things that matter. Location, Location, location. 
You can change the kitchen and the bathroom. You can extend a bit here. You can move a bit there. You can add on another story, maybe, or as seems to be happening, go downwards too. But if you've got the location wrong, you're in big trouble. Well, I think if we talk to the Apostle Paul, he would say, actually, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church of God, there are only three things that matter. And it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. You may move to another building next week. You will move to another building next week. And all kinds of things change. Pastors come and go over your history, as we have heard. Not that that is any inside information about any... You start digging a hole and it just gets to you. But actually, the one thing that remains is the gospel. And as we reflect on the church in our so-called developing but maybe regressing West, we're reminded of things we may prefer not to face. Whereas Windsor Baptist is seeing God's harvest in lots of ways. The reality is not true in so many other churches across uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the States, and, and other places. And I wonder, is it because we have wandered from the gospel? Is it because we've lost confidence in God and his purposes? Have we made it all far too complicated? You know, you can complicate everything, can't you? If you were to read uh, abstracts of PhDs, uh, you probably wouldn't understand what most PhDs are about. But some person said to PhD students, and apologies to anybody here, in the middle of a PhD, I know how hard it is. I know the wrestling of people who've done it. But actually, PhD students were asked to summarize their research so that everybody could understand it. And here are some of their answers. It's as simple as this. Nanoparticles are weird. And I accidentally made a bomb and electrocuted myself. Another PhD, when I get rid of this gene, it messes up the brain a lot. <laughs> this protein looks like it might contribute to asthma. Oh, turns out it probably doesn't. <laughs> now, this one you would have thought if they knew their Sermon on the Mount, they really, for a PhD on this, is bizarre. Sand washes away. Don't build important stuff on it. <laughs> People sometimes think about animals as if they were people. People like those animals a little more than animal, other animals, except when they don't. I can't believe they gave me a PhD for that. <laughs> and just as we can make all kinds of academic things complicated, we can make the gospel very complicated, when in fact it's very simple. And Paul says those words, and I can hardly say them without kind of feeling a, a, a energy. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to the Jews first and to the Gentiles. And you see, what we don't realize 2,000 years on is how radical and revolutionary this was. How absolutely, so we've become far too Familiar. One person says it is so revolutionary it makes Karl Marx's Das Kapital look like a Boy Scout manual. And you see great spiritual leaders down the centuries have named Romans as the book which has revolutionized their dull thinking. 
from the fourth century Augustine to Luther and Calvin to Wesley, whose heart was changed from reading Romans, and to Karl Barth in the 20th century, who found his thinking captured as he faced the dullness of liberalism. And as I've preached through Romans, I found my faith encouraged, inspired, and energized again. And for the writer Paul, it is the fullest expression of his understanding of the gospel, of God's big plan. What's it all about, God? And so in this letter, he explains and goes into depths. But as Paul wrote this, he was writing about something he had lived for and suffered for. He'd been beaten up and imprisoned. He had nearly lost his life a number of times. And he had carried on because it's all about the gospel. And he saw churches advanced and he saw them get in a mess. And still he knew the glory of the gospel. And you see, in this passage, we have seven truths about the gospel, which you know, but sometimes we forget. And I just want to remind us, a quick refresher course, of what it's really all about and why it really is so exciting. It is seven truths that it is, it's not ours. Paul didn't make it up. It is from God himself, the Father. The focus is Christ, Savior and Lord that actually shows a commitment to everyone. Everyone is included. This was new. We can't believe that today. And it is uh, something that the Old Testament pointed to. It, it, this is actually something they should have been expecting, but suddenly were taken by surprise. And it, was for, it is for all nations. And lovely to see those pictures of people from Beijing and that reminding us that this gospel is for everyone, everywhere. The goal of the gospel is that we might all have trusting faith in God himself. And the ultimate focus is to bring glory to God. That is the gospel in a nutshell. It is the gospel of God about Christ according to the scriptures for the nations to bring faith for the sake of the name of Jesus. Now much better minds than mine have tried to write a thousand PhDs on the gospel and what it means. I prefer to stick with Occam's razor. The simplest solution is the best. The simple truth of the gospel is what changes lives, is what brings hope, is what makes a difference. People despise the gospel because it seems to be too simple. It seems improbable, impossible. It seems weak and flimsy in the light of 21st century thinking as well as 1st century thinking. And yet this is the good news, which down the centuries so many have died for, have lived and suffered and proclaimed. And we stand in that great tradition. The gospel is a great leveler. It is for everyone. It is for the powerless, the marginalized and the poor. Each one of us today encounters God through faith. Each one of us today has our sins and our failings forgiven, are made children of God, are filled with the Spirit, are being transformed, are introduced into God's community, not because of any education or any finance or anything like that. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. By acknowledging Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and living God's way, not our own way. 
Archbishop Justin Welby said, the best decision anyone can ever make is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he went on to say, the first uh, purpose of the church is that it exists to worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And second, the church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything else is decoration. Some of it may be very necessary and very useful decoration, but it is decoration. And so this passage moves on and it tells us about gospel foundations. What is it all based on? Because if you don't get your foundations right, if you've got your sand as your foundation, you are in trouble. And of course, the first foundation from this chapter, you know, well, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just reminding you of stuff that somehow gets lost in everything else that is going on. The goodness of God. Aren't we grateful for a God who is full of compassion and kindness? The God we worship, the God who's revealed himself, is a good God. He, we have, we've shared bread and wine because of God's kindness and love for us. In the cross, we see God acting in the right way according to his character. God who is full of love and holiness. God sees the problem of evil, the problem of wrongdoing and corruption, and he cannot accept that. But in his love and goodness, he finds a solution. And this is the revolution. The revolution is that the gospel is for the poor and the powerless and the marginalized and the broken. But it is also for the abusers, for the men raping women in conflicts all over the world. For the people traffickers, the mean, the violent, the uncaring, the rude, the proud, and the unholy. The gospel is for anyone who will recognize their need of God, their need of forgiveness, their need of hope, and their need of life. God demonstrates his faithfulness and his holiness and his love. He doesn't contradict himself. God is righteous, acting in faithfulness and justice bringing salvation to us. That is the gospel. And then the gospel foundation is the lordship of Christ. In verses 1 and 2 of Romans, Paul claims the whole world for Jesus. And that may not seem very revolutionary to us, but he's writing a letter to Rome, remember, where Caesar is lord, where Caesar was called the son of God, where Caesar, when he had his birthday, was seen as a good news day. And so Paul writes to say, actually, there is better news than that. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. And right from the outset, Paul wants to say to his readers that Jesus is the true Lord, the one King, and the foundation of him is everything that uh, must be based on that. And today, each one of us may very easily say and sing in church, Jesus is Lord. And yet, what rules our life? Money, work pressure, temptations, jealousy. Every time we compromise our faith in some way at work or in lifestyle, in how we handle our money or our time or our relationships, then we've forgotten the Lordship of Christ. And we need to keep taking ourselves back to the altar and offering ourselves again. We sing too easily, Jesus is all, I give my all. 
the revolution, revolution calls us to actually live it out day by day, moment by moment. We cannot have Jesus as Savior if he isn't Lord. We cannot say we like the bit about receiving life and transformation and God's generosity and forgiveness if we're not willing to forgive others, if we're not willing to lay down our lives for others, to sacrifice. And then the gospel is, of course, received by faith. It is the response of faith. Verse 17 is reflecting Habakkuk, and it says, the righteous will live by faith. We do not understand it all. I wish I understood it all, but if I understood it all, God would not be God. God is, there is a mystery about God. There is a greatness about God that is way beyond human understanding. But God has revealed himself. We know everything we need to know. We can grasp what we need of the gospel. And we are called to have faith. To believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. To trust that actually nothing we can do can make us right before God. That God won't love us anymore, think us any, any better of us, because we have stored up lots of good works. And actually, we know that in our head, and yet we still live it out in our lives if we are not careful. We are called to live by faith, in humble trust, day by day, following in every way we can the leading of God and recognizing his lordship in our lives by faith. That means sometimes we don't know. Lord, am I doing this right? I'm not sure. But we keep doing what we believe God is calling us to do. In verse 5, Paul uses the term obedience of faith. And he means that we follow all we know of God's truth as revealed in Scripture. We seek to live as he would have us live as far as we are able. So we've had six, seven truths about the gospel, three gospel foundations, and now three gospel attitudes. And Paul speaks saying, I am compelled, verse 14, I'm obligated, indebted to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and fo the foolish. I am compelled to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says he cannot not share the gospel. It's been given to him as a gift. And how can he not pass it on to others? It's like that simple definition that was given, that actually all of us who have heard the good news and responded in faith are beggars who have discovered a banquet and we are simply telling other beggars where they too can feast and find the banquet. It is a debt to discharge when God has done so much and we know it, then we are compelled to respond by sharing it with others, not to keep it to yourself, but to pass it on. As a child, I grew up in a Baptist church where we had um, a preacher, J.J. Brown of Spurgeons. And he used to come to our church, and there was one story that struck me and has stuck with me all these years. He spoke of going into a prison and telling them the good news of Jesus, how they could be forgiven for everything they had done wrong, everything that they had messed up in their life, they could be forgiven. And one of the prisoners looked at him and said, if I really believed what you're saying, I would crawl across England on broken glass to tell people. He understood the power of the gospel. He just couldn't believe it. We hope that maybe he got there one day. And then Paul says, I am eager 
do you know, I don't know, the modern mood seems to be reluctance. Am I bothered? Whatever. Seems to be the kind of stuff, you know, it's not cool to be excited or enthusiastic. We're not allowed to force our opinions on others, of course not. But actually, we're not even supposed to tell them what we believe. That's a bit kind of embarrassing. Our eagerness is squeezed out of us by unhelpful misunderstandings. Or it, cynicism overtakes us. Cynicism stems from disappointment. Cynical and faithless people once were really eager and excited. And we have to recapture that eagerness for the gospel. So it's countercultural to be excited about faith and belief and want to share it. It goes against what's polite and acceptable. Paul knew about that. In the first century, to talk about the uniqueness of one man, when they were worshipping a plethora of gods and idols, that wasn't socially acceptable in Paul's culture either. Yes, Paul was eager counterculturally eager, embarrassingly eager, and so should we be. But so many of us have become so proper, so bound up by the world around us that we've forgotten the exuberant joy of belonging to Christ, the eagerness to share his gift with others. And then the third attitude, compelled, eager, and unashamed. There are many times I am ashamed of myself, my thoughts, my words, my deeds. There are times when I'm ashamed of the church, its words, its deeds, its abuse of power. I'm ashamed of those who take the good news of Jesus Christ and use it to control or burden others. I'm ashamed of Baptists when we lack humility and generosity, when we are harsh and unkind. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am proud to have faith in God who loves us, who has compassion on the prostitute, the hungry, the homeless, and the drag addict, who cares for the refugees, the asylum seekers, and the stateless. I am proud to be able to say to anyone that there is hope in God and his grace, that in our mistakes and our brokenness, God can meet us and give us a fresh start. I am proud of the gospel that has the answer to the pain and suffering of our lives. Oh, no, not easy answers. Don't think that. But answers that tell us that God walks with us in the shadows, in the pain, in the suffering, and in the death. I am proud that the gospel is God's power for salvation. Power to rescue through prayer and intercession. Thank you for the prayers this morning, brilliantly crafted, and thank you. So often our prayers are just a hospital list that pass for prayer or self-interest or sentimental thinking. No, power in prayer is when we wrestle and listen to God and hear his spirit leading us forward. There is power when through the call of the gospel we get on our knees and we seek God for what he wants, for his kingdom purposes. Bruce Milne said, in the work of mission, the church advances on its knees. One of our churches in our association is Retford in Nottinghamshire. They had sensed God had more for them. And they called the church to a prayer festival. 
It's always been called a week of prayer, but they didn't think that was trendy enough, so they called it a prayer festival. Same thing, but it sounds much better. Engaged people, didn't it? And as they prayed, listening to God, they said God was calling them to intercede for a conversion every month. And John, the pastor, got a bit nervous of that and thought about people being disappointed. He said, well, perhaps God will give us one every two months. But they prayed. And last year when they did it, they were up to 19 who came to Christ, more than one a month. And they've just started some radical stuff calling Spirit Cafe, giving people readings from Scripture, but using the language which has caused them a bit of upset that people come and hear words from Scripture and words of wisdom. It's the power of the gospel. Power to transform as each disciple turns to God. Power to release us from self-interest, to liberate us from our insecurities and empowering us to love. Power to forgive us as each fumbling believer gets it wrong and turns back to God. Power to provide all we need if we will just learn to truly follow and trust. To offer our few loaves and fishes when we learn to lay down our lives and God takes our offering, and then he multiplies it a hundredfold. But we have to be prepared to make our offering, our sacrifice. Power to ignite our worship with heartfelt praise and adoration. Power to engage the whole being as those who look to God in all things. Yes, the gospel, the message of the cross is so simple. It is embarrassing. It is a stumbling block. If it were a little more sophisticated, perhaps it would have more credence with the intellectuals and the significant people. Make us feel a little less simplistic. But the message of the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is foolishness. But that is the very wisdom of God. That in its simplicity, it has the power to change the world. The truth to change everything. We need to immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel. Experience its power, its compassion, its holiness, its grace, so that we stand tall as we worship and believe. And so the gospel is our calling. That's what God's word to us today is saying. Don't forget your calling. We've already heard Sarah use the words, God so loved the world. We know those words too well. But God so loved the world that he gave his son that everyone who believes might not perish but have eternal life. Through faith, not blind faith. Faith that says we believe you are, Lord. Meet with us. May we encounter you. Lead us in your ways. It is about being eager and unashamed. It is about so understanding the truth of the gospel that each day our lives are transformed by its power and its grace. Three things matter. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Everything else is decoration. Amen.